Come now with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I thought last week was the pinnacle of this passage for me. I've been anticipating preaching verses 29 and 30 for a long time. And I've been absolutely overwhelmed this week um, by the passage that is before us. Multiple times during the week, just stopped, paused, bowed my head in worship in my office, on the verge of tears multiple times during the week, just overwhelmed by grace. This has been called by some the greatest letter, excuse me, the greatest chapter and the greatest letter and the greatest book ever written. And it has been such a joy to unpack this book and now this chapter for you. And um, I trust this morning that as we plumb the depths of the work of God in our salvation, that you will be riveted to Him, uh, grateful for His work on our behalf. Let me read verses 31 to 34. I don't think we're going to finish. We didn't in the first hour, so I'm anticipating not making it here. Um, and then we will look at these few verses. Romans 8:31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Would you bow with me? Amazing words, our Father, not just from the pen of Paul, but from your mouth. These words are not the creation of a man, they are the revelation of God. They are inerrant truth that are the hope of our sanctification and the hope of our security. Would you bolster our security and our assurance in Christ because of what we read and see in these verses this morning? Would you give me clarity and accuracy and joyful passion so that we are drawn to you and to our Savior Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit who resides within us and, and uses these words to conform us to our Savior. It is in His name that we pray. Amen. Most of us probably don't feel as secure as we did a few years ago or perhaps a few decades ago. I was thinking about that this week and reflecting back when I was about eight years old. My family and I lived just north of downtown Dallas. Now, when I say that, I don't mean like North Dallas. I mean like blocks north of downtown Dallas. And that's not a good area of Dallas now, and it wasn't a good area of Dallas some 50 years ago. But on a typical Saturday morning, it was not unusual for me to get my breakfast, to pull out my bicycle, to tell my parents goodbye, and disappear for hours. That was back in the days when there were no cell phones, and certainly eight-year-olds wouldn't have had cell phones even if they did have cell phones back then. There's no GPS tracking. I said goodbye, and Mom and Dad had no idea where I was or when I would return. In those days, there was no thought about criminal behavior against children. There was no thought about accidents that might happen. When I had children that age, I wouldn't even let them play in my front yard in Granbury, Texas, without supervision. Uh, we, we live in a world that we are well aware of is not safe and is not secure. We lock our houses and our cars. We have security systems on both. 
We have passcodes on our computers and on our cell phones and dozens of passwords for various websites, if not hundreds of passwords and for websites and our tech devices. Seemingly every week we hear about news of a a major internet breach, some company that was hacked and uh, millions of passwords or or financial data was lost. In fact, I didn't take the time to look at it, but just yesterday I saw a scroll on a news channel. Another hack happened yesterday somewhere, and millions of pieces of information were lost, and somebody's probably stealing your bank account dry right now, even as I'm speaking. We have apps to keep the bad guys from getting our bank information and computer access, and we have other apps that keep us from going to bad places and keeping us safe from ourselves on the web. We have devices that turn lights off and on in our homes at various times to to give the illusion that we are there. We have cameras attached to our doorbells so that we can see who is approaching our homes. We have we have gates and fences around our yards to protect us outside. We have safes and, and lockers in our houses inside to protect our valuables. And just in case that none of that works, we have various kinds of weapons in our home to defend ourselves. My next-door neighbor came over a few years ago, two or three years ago, and we were talking. He was asking if I wanted to do something. I said, I can't do that. And we got to talking about guns. And, and he pulled out his and said, I've got my Glock, whatever, whatever it was today. Great. Um, how many guns do you have? Oh, I don't have any idea. Now, how many guns do you have to have to where you don't know how many you have? So we continued talking, and, and a couple minutes later, he got kind of quiet and said, Well, I'm not sure exactly how many I have, but I know it's over a hundred. Yeah, that's what I said. And then he thought for a minute, and you kind of see him counting in his head, right? I can get to seven without getting out of bed. I didn't know whether I should feel more secure or less secure. I'm just grateful that we're friends. <laughs> Too often today we feel unsafe and insecure. But there's no insecurity that is as tragic as when a believer in Jesus Christ feels insecure. For the Lord has saved us and redeemed us and placed us in Christ. And we are His. And the Apostle Paul, as he thinks about this process of sanctification, Romans 5 to 8 is all about sanctification. Romans 8 is about sanctification. But Romans 8 is not just about sanctification. It's also about the Spirit of God working in us. And we see the Spirit mentioned by name some 20 times in this chapter. And because the Spirit of God is the one who is sanctifying us in our salvation, there is also throughout this chapter an undercurrent of Paul laying out our security and assurance in Christ. When you have been saved, you're kept and you are saved. And this is the very theme that we're going to see in these verses this morning. Because our salvation is God's work of salvation, we are safely saved. I read that sentence after I wrote it on Friday morning, and I thought, well, Terry, there's a lot of words there that are basically the same. Salvation, salvation, safely saved. I mean, they're all all the same word. They're all talking about saving. And I kept it that way intentionally. Because I want you to hear, even as the Apostle Paul is going to unfold it for us this morning, that when we are saved, we are safe in the arms of God. We are kept by Him. The question is about our salvation. How should we think of that salvation? Paul will basically ask that at the beginning of verse 31. He asks one overarching question. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things that he answers with six further questions? And his answers or his questions actually provide an answer for how we are to think about our salvation. And from, from, uh, from 
this passage this morning, we're going to see four questions that will strengthen our assurance. Actually, I think we'll only get to three, but we will see four questions that will strengthen our assurance in Christ. And as Paul breaks this down, he's going to identify for us um, God's judicial provision that keeps us safe. So, so God's working in the court system, if you will. God's judicial provision in verses 31 to 34. And then in verses 35 to 39, he's going to talk about God's provision of love to keep us in our salvation. God's judicial provision and God's provision of love. Because our salvation is God's work of salvation, we are safely saved Four questions to strengthen our assurance. The first of them is given in verse 31. What should we think about our salvation? What should we think about our salvation? What should we say to these things, Paul says? When he says these things, the question obviously arises, what what things is Paul talking about? What, what is he referring back to that he wants us to respond to? And certainly he could be referring back to the things that he has spoken of in verses 29 and 30, talking about how God has worked in the eternal past foreknowing us and predestining us and then, and then calling us, verse 30, to our salvation and then justifying us in our salvation and then glorifying us in that salvation and all of those things in the transcendent view of God having already occurred and being complete. So God has fully accomplished our salvation from beginning to end, from eternity past to eternity future. We are safe in Him. If all those things are true, what should we say to that? But I believe the Apostle is is looking even further back than that, and he's actually going back to the beginning of this section in chapter 5 and thinking back over the whole process of sanctification and even going back beyond that to the beginning of the letter and helping us to think about everything that he has written so far in this letter. What should we say to these things? And just by way of reminder, the the book of Romans is divided into five main sections. Chapter 1 through verse 20 of chapter 3 is about sin. Um, Chapter 3, verse 21 through the end of chapter 4, verse 25 is about salvation. Chapter 5 through chapter 8 is about sanctification. Chapter 9 through 11 is about sovereignty. Chapter 12 through the end of the book is about service. So sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. Paul's reflecting back and thinking about all those things, particularly that relate to the working out of our salvation, sin, salvation, sovereignty, and saying, what should we say to these things? Just come back with me to chapter 1 for a moment. What, What should we say about our sin? What should we say about our need for God? Well, one of the things we need to say is given to us in verse 18 of chapter 1, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 20, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, having been understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. There's no excuse. Men push down the truth. They try and suppress the truth. They try and do away with the truth. They try and hide the truth. But like, like a beach ball in a swimming pool, that, that, that truth is going to come to the surface. You cannot hold it down. And they are accountable. This, this, is, this is what Paul says about, about those who are not, not Jews, not, not under the, the covenant of promise that God made to the nation of Israel. They are the Gentiles. They are outside the covenant. They are, they are rejecters of God and haters of God. And what we will say about them is that without Christ, all men are rebels against God who attempt to suppress God's truth. But it's not just a problem with Gentiles. It, it is even, we, we will also say that even Jews who have the truth are also without also have condemnation without Christ. So chapter 2, verse 1, you have no excuse. Every one of you passes judgment for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things. You, Jew, who is judging the Gentile for their their disobedience, you're doing the same thing. How do you think you're going to escape the judgment? Verse 4, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience knowing 
Let the kindness of God lead you to repentance. You ought to be repenting of your own sin. And instead, you're in judgment underneath it. The problem is not just for Jew and Gentile. The problem is for every single man. Because by the works of the law, chapter 3, verse 20, no flesh will be justified in his sight. There is, there is no one who does righteous and there is no one who can be righteous before God by some kind of vain attempt to, to maintain the law on their own. What should we say about our need for God? What should we say about our sin? We should say that I am damned. All of us are without Christ. We, we have no hope. What he says in chapters 1 to 3 is about me. What should we say, secondly, about God's gift of salvation through faith? What should we say about God's provision of salvation? We we should say that God has declared us just by grace alone, through faith alone. This is this is um, verse 24 of chapter 3, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ. Verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So if someone has faith in Jesus Christ saying, I need you to save me. I cannot save myself. I need you. Then God is just in pouring out His wrath against Christ. And He is at the same time a justifier of the one who comes in petition leaning on Jesus Christ for His salvation. God has further declared us to be just through Christ's death and resurrection Chapter 4, verse 25, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, and He was raised because of our justification. So He was he was delivered over because of our sin. He was sent to His death because of our sin, and He was raised to bring about our justification and our life. What should we say? We should say, God has worked. What should we say about God's provision for our sanctification. We should say He has saved us from the domain of Adam and He has placed us in Christ. Chapter 5, verse 15. The free gift is not like the transgression, for if the transgression of the one, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So we have been placed in Christ by grace, been taken out of Adam and out of sin and out of being under condemnation and out of connection with Satan, and we have been connected to Christ. What do we say to these things? We say that He has saved us from the power of sin now though, so that we can obey Him. Chapter 6, verse 11. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Christ is alive. We are in Christ. We are alive. And because we are alive, He says in verse 12 of chapter 6, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. He has saved us so that we don't have to sin. What should we say about our sanctification? We should say that He has saved us with a hope that even when we struggle with sin, we have provision. And who of us doesn't struggle, right? So I do the things that I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I do want to do. This is chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. And He culminates with a provision, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so Christ is our provision. He has saved us with a confidence that even when we sin, there is no condemnation. Chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What should we say to our sanctification? We should say that He has saved us and is saving us through sanctification by the Spirit's ongoing work to confirm our position as adopted sons. The Spirit Himself, chapter 8, verse 16, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. What do we say to all these things? We say, God has worked. God has worked through Christ and by the power of the Spirit applying these truths to our lives. The entire Trinity has been working to bring about our salvation, our redemption, our hope. What do we say to these things? He has worked. What's interesting about this question, 
what then shall we say to these things? As if Paul is inferring, there's a logical conclusion to what he said. There, there, there's something that we ought to be thinking about what he has said. And, and not just that, that there's a logical conclusion, but there is something obvious to what he has been saying. Uh, several other times in this book, he uses this same question, what then shall we say? So talking about salvation by grace through faith, he says in chapter 4, verse 1, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? What, what should we say about Abraham and grace and faith? That even Abraham was saved by grace through faith, and, and Abraham is saved in the same way that we are saved. That's what, you, what we should say. He says something similar in chapter 6, thinking about the magnitude of God's grace and how expansive God's grace is to cover every kind of sin. Chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Never! No, no, no. We don't, we don't magnify grace by sinning more. We don't say that. We, we magnify grace by living by grace. Chapter 9, verse 14, talking about his choice of Jacob and not his choice of Esau. What shall we say then? There's no injustice of God, is there? May it never be. You don't want to say God's not just in His sovereign choosing of various people. Do you? No. It's obvious. No. And in the same way, the Apostle Paul comes to verse 31 of chapter 8 and he says, what shall we say to these things? Oh, brothers and sisters, it's... It's patently obvious to Paul. What we should say is that God has poured out immense grace and He has worked. What follows then to this, this great safety and security that we have in the arms of God is a, is a series of questions that should lead His readers to resting in the goodness of God and the provision of God. Here's, here's a little prelude to what Paul's going to conclude in these verses. Listen to what John Stott says. Paul hurls his questions into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. He challenges anybody and everybody in in heaven, earth, or hell to answer them and to deny the truth which they contain. But there is no answer. For no one and nothing can harm the people whom God has foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. What should we say? We should say, God has worked. We are safe. We are secure. Second question that the Apostle asks to strengthen our assurance is the question at the end of verse 31, who is against us? One of the questions of the doubter is, can my salvation be safe with so many people and so many powers that are against me? I, I face so much opposition in life. Can, can God in Christ really overcome it? And that's, that's the question that he asks at the end of verse 31. Who is against us? Who's against us? Well, just, just think about who is against you in this world. Your, your flesh is against you. Your flesh is constantly working to lead you into sin and away from Christ. There's, there's an internal yearning that remains from, from what we were in original sin that leads us away from Christ. Your own sin, your own flesh is your enemy. We are still opposed by death. Death, last time I checked, is still one out of one. Everybody dies. And, 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 and what about the hardships that Paul talks about? Verse 35, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. Friends, that's, that's real opposition. In fact, that was the Apostle Paul's real life. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, read through that chapter, you see all these kinds of things in his life. People beating him with lashes, three times, 39 lashes. Shipwrecks, people who are opposed to him in the church. All kinds of troubles, all kinds of difficulties. This is real opposition. 
And it's not just those kinds of things. Notice verse 38. Death, life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, all kinds of created things. All of those are against us. We live in a world where there's opposition. The Apostle Paul promised that we would face opposition in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Peter tells us that we will face persecution, difficulty, trial, trouble if we don't believe the Apostle Paul and we don't believe the Apostle Peter from the words, from, excuse me, from the lips of Jesus himself. He says in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. The world hates you. If you're going to be in Christ, you'll be hated and opposed by the world. Satan is opposed to us. Satan always stands accusing us. He is, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, like a roaring lion seeking those whom he can devour. He stands, John says in Revelation chapter 12, he stands ever before the throne making accusation against the brothers. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is opposed to us in everything that we do. And and the question is, how will the believer stand amidst all this opposition? What's interesting is that while there's opposition in the world, the way Paul asks the question anticipates a negative response. No one can succeed in their opposition against us. No one, no one can succeed in taking us out of Christ once we are in Christ. There's, there's no power that can destroy our salvation once we have been saved. No one can succeed and no one does succeed, not because of their inherent inability, but they do not succeed because of the presupposition that Paul makes in verse 31. Notice I just read the last part of verse 31. Who is against us? But there's something that precedes that, right? If God is for us. What's significant to note is that is that in the English, if God is for us, makes it sound like, well, maybe He is and maybe He isn't. It depends on the day. But that's not what Paul means. Paul means if He is and He certainly is for us. Since He is for us. And when He says He is for us, that means He is on our side. It means, it means that He has aligned Himself with us, or rather aligned us with Him, drawn us in, so that we are on the same team as it were. He is our defender, our keeper. And in fact, three times in these four verses, the Apostle emphasizes that God is for us. Verse 31, if God is for us. Verse 32, He did not spare His own Son, but but delivered Him over for us all. For us all. For us. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ Jesus is He who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The Father's on our side. The Son is on our side. The Spirit is on our side. He's on our team, helping, defending. And what is the benefit of God being for the believer? Ray Ortland Jr. says it well. Paul asks if God is for us, who can be against us? And that makes a difference, doesn't it? The God who is never defeated by evil but always uses evil for good. The God who can never be outflanked or surprised or wearied or perplexed. This God is for us. And if God is for you, then God would have to be defeated for you to be defeated. Oh, who can be successful against us and who can overwhelm our salvation? Since God is on our side, no one and nothing. Yes, we have enemies, but we have no enemy that we should fear. 
There is no, as John Stott said, all the powers of hell may set themselves together against us, but they can never prevail because God is on our side. God is on our side. Who's against us? Nothing. I know you have problems. I know you have burdens. I know you have difficulties. But friend, there is nothing that can take you away from Christ if you are His. There's a third question. Will God give us what we need? This is verse 32. Will God give us what we need? Before we ask the question of this verse, Paul, and the question comes at the end of the verse, will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Will God give us what we need? Thank you, I agree with that. Before Paul asks the question, though, he sets the table for us and reminds us of some essentials of our faith and, and, and reminds us of what God has provided for us so that we can be confident that He will give us everything we need. Will God give us what we need? As you think about that, remember, first of all, the unsparing act of God. Remember the unsparing act of God. Verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son. He did not spare His Son. Only two other times in the New Testament is the word spare used with God as the subject. One instance is in Romans chapter 11. I do not want you to be uninformed. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Um, excuse me, verse 21. Um, speaking about the um, relationship of the church to Israel and how God has disciplined Israel. And if He disciplined Israel, He might discipline the church. He says in verse 21, If God did not spare the natural branches... Israel, He will not spare you either. If, if, if God is willing to be unsparing with His covenanted people, He is willing to be unsparing in His discipline of you in the church. Um, Peter will take that same word and use it in Second um, Peter chapter 2 about the rebellion of, of sinful angels against God and how God is unsparing in His wrath against them. And he will also use it in the next verse to speak about the rebellion of the world in the time of Noah and how God was unsparing of the world during that time. God is unrelenting in His, de- in his wrath and discipline. He, he is willing not to pull back His wrath. He is unwilling to relent from that which needs discipline and His wrath and His judgment. There is a certainty to judgment. And friends, it is that attitude that God took against Christ. He was unwilling to pull back His hand from wrath. But He sent His hand out in wrath against Christ. The same idea is used in Genesis chapter 22. You know the story about Abraham and Isaac. It says in in Genesis chapter 22, verse 12, that the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and said, said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, the angel of the Lord, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to harm him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. You have not, and the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, you have not withheld your son. Withholding is that Greek word spare. You have not spared your son. Abraham didn't spare his son. So God the Father did. Verse 16 and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld, spared your son, 
your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. You haven't spared, so I have spared. God manifested great grace to Abraham and Isaac. Christ did not receive that grace in the moment of wrath. God did not withhold judgment from His Son. God did not pull back from the agonizing cup of wrath which Christ drank for us. As one writer says, that bitter cup, love drank it up. It's empty now for me. He did not spare His Son. I want you to notice secondly in this verse, the cost of God's own Son. Remember the cost of God's own Son. Paul is emphatic. He who did not spare His own Son. God has many sons. In fact, just earlier in this chapter, Paul has emphasized that we are sons of God if we have faith in Christ, right? That's verse 14. Verse 15, You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons. We cry out, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, not just children, but but we're heirs. We get the inheritance. He didn't pour out His wrath on us. It was His own particular Son. Not just any Son would do. It would take the second member of the triune God to absorb God's wrath. We, catch this, we, His sons who went astray, were spared from His wrath. Jesus Christ, second member of the Trinity, who always loved God and always was loved by God from eternity past to eternity future, He was not spared so that we could be spared. Christ refused to spare Him. Friends, this is the cost. This is the cost of salvation. We agree with Katie Luther who said of Abraham offering his son Isaac on the altar in Genesis 22. They were reading that story one one morning and, and Katie said, I do not believe it. God would not have treated His Son like that. But Katie, Luther said, He did. He did. And that is the cost of our salvation. I want you to notice as well from verse 32, the wrath of God. Remember, remember the wrath of God. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over. God not only didn't spare Christ, God God didn't intercede and stop it. That would be sparing. It's even more than that. God was proactive, and God delivered him to death. God sent him to death. Other verses tell us in the scriptures that there were others involved in this process. Other verses use the same word, delivery, um, about how Christ went to the cross and attribute attribute Christ's delivery to other people. So, For instance, in identifying the disciples in Matthew chapter 10, Matthew says, um, identifies one of the disciples as Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed, or the word is our same word here, delivered him. So Judas delivered Christ. 
Jesus will say the same thing in Matthew 26, 21. As they were eating, He said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray Me. One of you will deliver Me. Same word as we have here. Mark chapter 15, it's not just Judas, but early in the morning the chief priests with the elders and scribes of the whole council immediately held a consultation and binding Jesus, they led Him away and delivered Him to Pilate. So, it was the religious leadership. It was the Sanhedrin who was gathering on that night. They delivered Christ to His crucifixion. Matthew chapter 27, verse 26, it says about Pilate, Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. He handed him over. He delivered him. So it was Judas who delivered him. It was the Sanhedrin who delivered him. It was Pilate who delivered him. But behind the actions of all those men, there's one who is sovereignly working. It was God who delivered Christ to His death. It was, it was God who sent Him. This is, this is a theme that we see throughout the Scriptures. For instance, in Isaiah chapter, Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet prophesies and says, But the Lord... was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. That's us. Christ is the crushed guilt offering so that we become the offspring. And it pleased God to do that. We find something similar in Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1 verse 19, it was the Father's good pleasure for the, all the fullness, that is the fullness of the Godhead, to dwell in Christ and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. It was the Father's good pleasure to reconcile through the blood of the cross. It was the Father's good pleasure to crush the Son. It's even more than that. God did not just deliver Christ to death. God delivered Christ to Himself so that Christ could be the object of His wrath. God sent Christ not just to the cross. God sent Christ to God to receive infinite wrath that is due my sin. God crushed Christ and delivered Him to Himself for His wrath so that He might deliver us to the Son as redeemed sons. ought to stop us, friends. Such amazing grace. J.C. Ryle said, two things there are which man has no arithmetic to reckon, no lie to measure. One of these things is the extent of that man's loss who loses his own soul. The other is the extent of God's gift when He gave Christ to sinners. Sin must indeed be exceedingly sinful when the Father must needs give His only Son to be the Savior's friend. Oh, friends, remember the wrath of God. Remember the wrath of God. And then, remember why the gift of Christ was given. Did you notice this? He delivered Him over for us all. In fact, the phrase is more emphatic than that. What Paul is really emphasizing here is for us. He did not spare his own son, but for us all delivered him over. It was for us 
It was for our redemption. It was so that we might be the gift of the Father to the Son, a redeemed bride married to the groom Christ that would forever glorify and honor Him. That's why He sent Him. It was, it was for us so that He and His salvation would be a gift for us and so that we ultimately would be a gift for the Son. But notice, this gift is not for all of mankind, but, but this gift of Christ and salvation are only a gift to those who are God's sons. And friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, none of this is for you. You have no assurance. You are still under God's wrath. God did not spare His Son for you. God did not give His Son for you until you believe. And you must believe. You must appropriate the truth of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ today, if you, if you do not desire Jesus Christ, if you are not living for Jesus Christ, I call you this morning to repent, to turn away from your sin, and to embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior, to trust that He died for your sins, and to trust that He is worth living for from this point forward. Christ is given for us, but only for us. But notice also he says, for us all. It's all inclusive. Everyone who trusts in Jesus Christ, male and female, Jew and Greek, slave and free, regardless of social standing or race or sex or nationality, he gave Christ to all who are his And He gave Christ to each person individually. He doesn't save, He doesn't save nations. He doesn't save people groups. He saves individuals. I like what John Murray says. God does not save men in the mass. He deals with each individual in His particularity. And this is to be taken into account in the Father's giving up of His own Son. The Father contemplated all on behalf of whom He delivered up the Son in the distinctiveness of the sin and misery and liability and need of each. He had you in mind, particularly, individually, as He designed salvation in eternity past and as, and as that wrath is being poured out on Christ on the cross, Father and Son, have you in their minds. It's for us. And if all these things are true, now let's look at the question at the end of verse 32. How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Will He give us all things? gives them freely. This word freely give means it's a grace gift. It's it's a question, will God continue to be gracious to me? If He's he's poured out this grace in the past, will, will He continue to pour out grace in the future? What kind of things do we need grace for? He says all things. Will He not also with Him freely give us all things. Does he mean all things related to our salvation? So that as you're looking back at foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification and glorification, is he talking about that process? Certainly. But he's used that same little phrase, all things, in the context of this passage. Verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Everything in our lives is working to good to produce conformity if we love Christ. I think he's talking about the same thing here. Everything you need, whatever it is to be conformed to Christ, God will give you. It's a grace gift. Every situation, every circumstance, 
He is behind the scenes orchestrating those to give you what you need. And notice that all these things, he says in this question, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He's given us him. And if he's given us him, won't he give us all the other things we need? And Paul is arguing here from the greater to the lesser. He's given us He's given us the greatest thing. What what more could we need but Christ? We don't need anything but Christ. Christ is the greatest gift. Christ is the greatest longing. Christ is Christ is what we need. And He's given us Christ. And if He's given us Christ, won't He give us the little bitty things we need? Oh yes. Or think about it in this way. If God has been willing to pour out His wrath on Christ and crush Him to bring about our salvation, will He then, after bringing out, bringing about our salvation at the cost of His Son, will He then leave us alone and leave us helpless with some smaller thing? No, friend. He will give us what we need Because we are His. We are safe and secure in Him. Friend, all that you need for salvation you have in Christ and having given you that, God will give you everything else you need to keep you in that salvation. Three and a half centuries ago, Charles Stephen Charnock wrote this, God's eternal delights were in Him not only as His Son, but as His Redeemer excuse me, but as a Redeemer. God's delight in Christ and Christ's rejoicing in the habitable parts of the earth and delighting in the sons of men are coupled together. God delighted in Him and in crushing Him because He delighted in the redemption of man. Because God delighted to crush the Son, you and I, are safe. Father, might these truths just overwhelm us. Might they not only overwhelm us, but might they give us a tremendous sense of security and peace and hope. Oh, Father, if we are in Christ, let us rest in your power to keep us in Christ. In his name and for his sake we pray. Amen.